Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting opposite me is Liam, sitting next to me is Floki. How's it going, dude? Yeah, not too bad, Maddie. How about you? Yeah, all right, thank you. Goody gumdrops. Uh, you'll have to forgive Liam a bit this week. We believe he's starting a chest infection. Something annoying. I just, I never get on well with the winter months, man. They always just kick my ass. And it's really fucking annoying. You're getting old now. Make sure you get your flu shot. Yeah, I know. Well, apparently, you're supposed to do that annually, aren't you? Supposedly. I've never had one, but I'm now yeah. approaching the age where that might actually be a good idea, and that's terrifying. Yeah, it's just um, things, you know, when we were 18 years old, I just go through it very bright and breezily and not even think about it. And now there's so... <laughs> Welcome to the Grumpy Old Man podcast. Yeah. It's rapidly becoming... It's like I have to lie down for 45 minutes to feel some semblance of reasonable. Like... We used to be grumpy young men, to be fair. Yeah. You know, the only thing that's really changed is the age. Oh, we've always been like ratty dickheads. Yeah. It's just, like, you know, certain physical changes... Well, yeah, on that cheery note, on that cheery start. <laughs> yes, as usual, we have a feature pack podcast this week. Let's kick things off with some film news. My first article this week, this is from Variety.com. Judd Apatow's star-studded Netflix movie releases meta-teaser for film within film. Judd Apatow's upcoming star-studded Netflix film, The Bubble, follows a group of actors stuck inside a pandemic bubble while shooting a movie at a hotel. That movie... Cliff Beasts 6, The Battle for Everest, Memories of a Requiem, just got its own official teaser. The Bubble stars Karen Gillan, Fred Armisen, uh, Maria Bakalova, Keegan-Michael Key, David Duchovny, Leslie Mann, Pedro Pascal, Peter Serafinowicz, Verdas, Rob Delaney, and Apatow's daughter, Iris Apatow. Apatow directs, produces, and co-wrote the script for The Bubble with Pam Brady, who executive produces alongside Donald Subarin and a lot of other people as well. The logline of the movie within the movie reads, Humankind is threatened once again by a dinosaur species, Cliff Beasts. The team must reunite after five long years to battle the Cliff Beasts, but this time on Mount Everest. Ordinarily, when I hear meta film within a film, a little bit of me internally dies. I was looking at the trailer for this earlier. This does actually look quite amusing. It does. Because mm. I've never been that crazy about Apatel, to be honest no. with you. No, me neither, actually. But um, I think it's quite revealing the uh, the level of cast that he's managed to bring to the project. Well, yeah, I mean, there does seem to be a hell of a mix in there. But yeah, I, I just I see Judd Apatow's name in nine out of ten. I just think, well, okay. I do quite like the idea of a bunch of actors. It's a trope that's been done before, I'm sure, but I'm struggling to think of of when. But the whole movie about making a movie except everything goes wrong. I mean, there's there's precedent for that, isn't there? But uh, I haven't seen anything from Judd Apatow in ages, it has to be said. No, I think the one film of his where I th- I think I recall laughing like more than twice may have, I think it might have been knocked up, which was surprising for me because I can't actually stand Seth Rogen at all. Yeah, he's so, a, he's an actor I've actually changed my mind on recently. What, Seth Rogen? Yeah, particularly uh, American Pickle. I thought he was particularly good. Quite an underrated movie, American Pickle. I remember you reviewing that quite favourably. I still haven't checked it out yet, but... Yeah, when it first came out, um, oh, it was, I think it was round about this time last year, but it made absolutely no impact whatsoever. I think because it was a, a small film and you know, the whole COVID pandemic and everything that was going on at that point. And I don't think it would have made a big splash regardless. But even though Seth Rogen is essentially doing like a, a comedy Jewish bit, which is a dangerous, dangerous waters to tread in, he sort of pulled it off. It wasn't an amazing film, but he actually managed to do some dramatic acting in there. Why is it dangerous wars threading? 
Well, I mean, you know, in these days of stereotypes, et cetera, et cetera, there is, he's playing a lot up to a very old school Jewish stereotype. Um, you could throw that book at Larry David and Woody Allen, though, to be fair. That I is mean, very much they, true. They are very, very taking the piss out of Jewish neuroticism and stuff. You know, sure, so. sure. But not so much in the modern age. You know, I think that's something that people are a little bit more careful with these days. But I, th- I thought he pulled it off for the most part quite well. And uh, I'm watching Pam and Tommy at the moment as well. I'm not reviewing it at the moment because I want to see it through to its conclusion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's in that and he's doing quite a good job of, uh, I wouldn't say it's a fully dramatic performance. There's comedy in it. But he's doing quite a good job there as well. So I'm starting to come around to him. Now he's not just the um, supposedly lovable chubby stoner guy, you know? Well, I'm glad if he is certainly evolving, I'm glad to hear that, definitely. I mean, it may sound unfair judging him too much on his past escapades. So, like, yeah, I haven't seen American Pickle yet and I haven't seen Pam and Tommy, so... Go for it and you get a kick out of it. The ending wasn't great, but there were a lot of moments within it that really did make me chuckle. It, this is American Pickle. American right? Pickle, sorry, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, like I say, it sort of loses its way in the in the final third. But it's got some interesting ideas before then. Because well, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, like myself, you are rather discriminating and hard to please when it does come to comedy. Yeah, so I think we we have a lot of overlap in our tastes when it comes to comedy. So I think if you if you liked it, I should probably give it a spin. Yeah, is there some witty witty little bits and pieces in that script? No, that's cool. Uh, second article this week: the Boys star Erin Moriarty cast in film about the first televised exorcism. The Boys breakout star Erin Moriarty has landed a new gig and will lead Screen Gems' upcoming horror adaptation of Edwin F. Becker's eponymous book True Haunting. Moriarty has become a fan favorite following her turn as the idealistic light-emitting soup Starlight in Amazon Prime's subversive superhero drama series. There's a lot of S's in there. The Boys, season one and two. The actor, who has previously appeared in shows like Jessica Jones, Red Widow, and True Detective, will soon return to reprise her role for The Boys season three when it premieres later this year. However, alongside that, Moriarty is also exploring other genres. A new report by Deadline reveals that Moriarty has been locked in to play the lead in True Haunting a movie about the first televised exorcism which is being directed by Gary Fledder. Also starring alongside Moriarty is the Twilight Saga actor Jamie Campbell Bower, whose role remains undisclosed. True Haunting is expected to follow the plot of Becker's real-life-inspired novel, which saw the young couple Ed and Marsha Becker buy their first home, unaware of the unholy spirits within it. The Beckers soon discover the truth about their new house and learn that it is possessed by the ghosts of its former inhabitants. As the plot unfolds, the Beckers call upon an exorcist to ward off the evil spirits. But as the exorcism is broadcast on national television, things take a turn for the worse in the household. Who was she in True Detective? I was trying to think on that one, actually. I can't remember. It's been so long since I watched it. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, I think she's very good in The Boys. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to place who she was in True Detective. It's going to bother you now. Yeah, it? it is, yeah. I'm mainly I brought this up because number one, I thought she was good in The Boys and number two, uh, exorcisms. It's the horror movie trope that keeps coming back. Well, it's the, the horror movie trope that was done to superior extent once mm. and it's had a lot of very horrendous imitations since. I was going to ask you actually as the resident horror hound, are there any other exorcism-based films that you'd recommend? No. <laughs> there, no, there there are haunting films. There are haunting films sure. that I would recommend. Um, you know, for example, I mean, I, I I do love The Exorcist. You know, but that is a possession slash exorcism film. But when you want to talk about haunting poltergeist activity, well, Toby Huber's Poltergeist is great. The Entity is great. But no, when it comes to actually people being exorcised, 
Mm. Then I know people rant and rave about stuff like the you know the conjuring and its many derivatives. But if you want to go with the you know the actual the one good gold standard cinematic endeavor, I'm sorry, it is The Exorcist. It's never really lost its punch, that film, has it? Every time I watch it, it feels as thrilling as the first time. I've heard people discuss how um, people have gone to screenings nowadays, people who are actually old enough to recall going to see it. I mean, when they went to see it in 1973, you know, they might have been sort of in their late teens, early 20s, and they remember being absolutely terrified and profoundly disturbed by it. And they've watched it with contemporary audiences who a lot of them around the same sort of age that these people would have been upon initial release sort of snickering at it because of you know the, the pea soup and maybe the uh, the makeup I mean I, I still look at um, uh, the Pazuzu makeup that Linda Blair wears and I do think it looks very unsettling yeah it looks horrible you know, in, a, in a good way. Was I, it the I, um, the unrated version that had the crab walk down yes, the stairs? Yeah, yeah the Crab walk or the spider walk or well, yeah, which is because I, I think the first time I ever watched it must have been the unrated version because I remember that very very specifically. I think it was cut from the original for being just too much for the time, and I, I can think, see why. I think test audiences saw that and it really really sent like a sort of icicle up their spine. It was just a yeah. moment where there were people were like, "What the fuck was that?" And that that's in a film that I think is replete with those. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, in terms of people having demons struck out of them, The Exorcist is still the best example of it. There's one at the start of Constantine, isn't there? That's about the only thing I can think of that I, I you know, I've spoken before about how I actually really rate Constantine. Whether you can actually classify it as an exorcism, he's pulling the demon out of somebody. Constantine, yeah, I think we, yeah, it, it is very good fun. But you couldn't really call it an exorcism based film anyway, but we shall see. Yes, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, next up this week, I have an article from movieweb.com. Sylvester Stallone reflects on Demolition Man, says it was ahead of its time. Sylvester Stallone has always been a fan of Demolition Man. While the critical response was a bit mixed when the sci-fi action film was released in 1993, Demolition Man has maintained a cult following over the years and is looked back at fondly by many of Stallone's fans as one of his best films. It's an appreciation that's shared by the actor himself. On Instagram, Stallone shared an image describing Demolition Man. The text on the photo says, In 1993, most critics dismissed a one-of-a-kind movie as just a stupid action flick with excessive explosions, except that it's smartly predicted and joked about political correctness, toxic masculinity, racial bias, the hysteria around cancel culture, and even more. By now, it's obvious that the movie was brilliant, but it still doesn't get enough credit. I always enjoyed this movie, Stallone adds in the caption. It was a great action film, wonderfully directed by Marco Brambia, and the writers were way ahead of their time. I put this in essentially because we both love The Demolition Man. I don't think we've ever actually mentioned it. No, I think Demolition Man is um, immensely enjoyable. I find it immensely enjoyable as, for the most part, as a rather ridiculous movie, though. Mm, yeah, and I think maybe he's pushing it a little bit far with it predicted this, it predicted that, but it's a fun action movie. Yeah, it's great for, you know, like Wesley Snipes or Simon Phoenix, you know, you know, you know, what is your boggle, sir? It's like my boggle. You know, it, it's really, really enjoyable, but is is Stallone trying to pitch it as this kind of dark, substantive dystopian film? Because I, I definitely don't think it's that. I don't I hate sounding like a snob. It's great. I really enjoy it. But I wouldn't really when I think of the term thought provoker, demolition man isn't usually one that pops right in there. No, I mean, I think it's interesting that he brought up the original critique of it was that it had too many explosions. And I think you could probably level that at Demolition Man to this day, but 
I mean, by Michael Bay's standards, not enough at the very least. But yeah, I mean, it's... When I think back over Stallone's work, obviously he's made some great films and he's made some terrible films over the years. I can't remember. I think he holds the record for the number of uh, Razzie nominations. I'm sure we covered that at some point. But thinking about it, Demolition Man might actually be his best film. It's up there at the very least how, because it's silly. I mean, I, I just, there are a couple of points in there. I mean, how, how does Demolition Man predict toxic masculinity? I mean, num- I number one, toxic masculinity is obviously it's a subjective sociological concept. And secondly, it's something that people have cited as being in movies for years and years. People take all that, that all the way back to Sean Connery as Bond and before. So I don't understand how it could have. I don't. So I just don't understand that. Without, I'm not trying to be too. In a weird way, thinking about it, it's sort of the opposite of his point, isn't it? Is that they make? I think what he's referring to is that the characters around him in the future make fun of him for being a bit of a dinosaur, you know, a red meat eating, sex loving, all American man. But when the film came out, wasn't the whole point that we were rooting for him because he was the sex loving, meat eating, big masculine American man? Yeah, and these... in a way, it's kind of reveling in it yeah. rather than. Smartly spearing it. Well, yeah, I mean, I recall the first time I saw it and uh, when Sylvester Sloan goes, when Sandra Bullock says to him, like, you know, like, you know, would, would you like to have sex? In, in, in that very straightforward, sort of chippy way. And he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, like, she tries to put the headset on him. He's like, why don't we just do the old-fashioned way? And, like, you know, and, and I, I did think at that point, well, yeah, what, 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 what possible fun could this be? But then I recall... Apparently, it is supposed to replicate all of the sensations and it Supposedly. doesn't come with any of the dangers such as SPD or pregnancy. So I, I tell you one thing they didn't get right was the three seashells. We're still using toilet paper to this very day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, that, that, isn't that like one of the weirdest gimmicky bits of MacGuffin? Yeah. <laughs> I think that the, 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 three, the three seashells, it was such a weird insertion. That's a really good idea for a premium episode, actually. MacGuffins. Yeah. Because that is one of the most bizarre. I'm with you. And then later on as well, they, they sort of backtracked on it and went, oh, you're supposed to take the sh- seashells and use them as some sort of poo clamp? I thought the whole thing was that it's never explained. Right, yeah. It kind of ruins it when you actually try and put together an ex- uh, some sort of retconned back explanation. Yeah, the, the it. reason yeah. it's in the pop culture is because it didn't have that. So, yeah. oh, for fuck's sake. But anyway, yeah, my major point here, and I think you'll agree with me on this one, is that I will agree that Demolition Man is underrated. Oh, it's incredibly good fun. I love it. It's Great Wesley Snipes villainous performance. Yeah, yeah, as well, absolutely. Right? The height yeah. of his powers. Yeah. Wesley Snipes steals the show. It's very entertaining. I, I, I could watch Demolition Man any day of the week. Well, those memorable bits, the eyeball on the stick. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The more I think about it, the more I want to watch it again. Oh, it's great. No, it's really, really good entertainment. But yes, I mean, other than that, not a lot going on in the film world at the moment other than um, a bunch of sanctions being leveled on Russian filmmakers. And I thought that wasn't a really fun way to start off the podcast. No, well, there's a few cool things. I mean, I think um, Killers of the Flower Moon is getting nearer and nearer to release. Yeah, I've stopped covering that one because it's now just become a no, stream of, of... It's and, getting um, closer. It's you know, getting and, closer. And It'll I'm be a, here soon. And I'm, you know, I'm a very big fan of... Not, I'm not only a big fan of David Cronenberg, but I also like his son Brandon a lot. I was really, really big on Possessor. And he, you know, he obviously did antiviral with Caleb Landry Jones, and he's got a new one coming up called Infinity Pool, mm. which sounds very interesting. It's about a couple who go away to, I think it's a Spanish resort, and there's lots of weird, surreal, hedonistic horror sci-fi shit going down there. Oh, I haven't seen anything about this. Yeah, look up in Infinity Pool. It hasn't. There's not like a ton of stuff out there about it. There's a few articles, but 
the synop- I thought the synopsis sounded very interesting right off the bat. And if it's any, I mean, I, I thought Possessor was fucking fantastic. So if it's anything like that, I'm really pumped for that. So uh, cool stuff. Yeah, like always, there's a there is a lot of cool stuff coming up. It's just, unfortunately not a lot of it is reaching the the highest echelons. We're in this of, cycle uh, of the hype is beginning to begin, but it's actually not out at the moment. So there isn't really any news. Yeah, they just yeah. want to focus on all of this stuff that's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll stick to our remit, shall we? Uh, speaking of which, actually, Liam, as usual, has a couple of film reviews for you this week. Take us away, dude. Okay, so first up, um, I think I brought up old uh, Steven Soderbergh a few times on the free and premiums recently, haven't I? I think you I have. about Unsane yeah. on the premium and um, recently spoke about Kimmy, which is his, it is his most recent film to date. I think just before the release of Kimmy, I believe in the, in the late months, the late months of uh, either December 2021 or January of this year, but um, he snuck another one in there. It's kind of, it, it just kind of got tucked in there because Kimmy was quite an anticipated release. And um, this one got a very, very minor amount of traction, but it's still like, I'd say the overwhelming majority of people probably haven't even heard of it being released, which is uh, No Sudden Move. Now, No Sudden Move, directed by Soderbergh, written by Ed Solomon. Now, this is uh, set in 1954 in Detroit, in Michigan. And uh, we open up with a man named Curtis Goines, played by Don Cheadle. Do you like Don Cheadle? I do. I've always yeah. really liked Don Cheadle. Do. Yeah, he's a really, really cool guy. Yeah, and he's like sort of your standard, um, he's kind of like a mid-level career criminal gangster with, uh, with you know, uh, very much involved in the uh, Detroit's black criminal underworld. He's, you know, he's a face there. Um, he does a lot of payroll jobs. And his uh, minimum operating fee is five grand, which in today's money is about 50K, I think. So I think, and he tried, you know, so he's one of those uh, very professional, keep a low profile, um, you know, only do things for a sensible amount of money. And he, as the film opens, he's going into a bar and he is informed by the, uh, the governor there that there's a chap out in the back waiting for him. And um, so he kind of goes out the back a bit furtively. He's a very, very smart motor parked and he's ushered to get into the back. And the man in the front is one Doug Jones, played by Brendan Fraser. I thought you were going to say played by Doug Jones for a yeah. bit there, just some real meta. Nah. This Doug, is the return yeah. of Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser, who, I mean, this guy, this is Brendan Fraser looking like Orson Welles. I'm not sure, I don't mean this, but he, he has let's say, transformed to a rather significant degree physically. He's basically piled on a shit ton of weight. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not there, you know. I but, think for the role, if I remember reading correctly. I, do you know what? I can't say to that. Uh, that may, may very well be the case. But pictures of him came out and people were going, oh my God, what happened to Brendan Fraser? And then a lot of people pointed out it was for this film. Well, that's fair enough. I'll have to completely concede there. because I, well, that, During the scene where he's introduced, I heard the voice and I thought, that voice is incredibly familiar. And then I looked at his face a couple more times and thought, fucking hell, that's Brendan Fraser. <laughs> you know? But Brendan Fraser is Doug Jones, who is something of a shadowy middleman for criminal employers and their prospective employees. He, um, as Go- Goins gets in the back and he hands him an envelope and says, um, you know, this is part of your baseline sum now. 
and a few hours after you're done, I'll give you the rest. And, you know, Goins is like, what's the job? And he's like, you need to go to somebody's house and babysit for a few hours. It's like, okie dokie. So Goins thinks it sounds a little bit weird, you know, like, do, do a, a babysitting job for, you know, five grand. I mean, what, what the fuck is all this? Who, who, who the hell offers this kind of detail? But um, he, he's, he's curious and wants to investigate further. So then we see Jones assembling two other guys. One is Ronald Russo, who is an Italian-American criminal played by Benicio Del Toro. And there's another chap called Charlie, played by Kieran Culkin. And um, so the three of them are acquainted. Jones says, oh, you know, just, just go on this detail. All you need to do, you need to go to a house. One of you is going to take the man of the house to his place of employment to pick up a document that somebody needs. The other, the, the other two, you're going to stay in the home and you're going to look after his wife and his two kids and make sure that they don't misbehave and just keep everything nice and running smoothly. So Russo and Goins and Charlie, they're together in the room. They kind of know each other's reputations a little bit and they shoot the shit. There's a little bit of acrimony in the air, but they'd say, okay, fuck it, let's just get on with this job. Sounds like we're all getting handsome payday for an incredibly straightforward bit of work. So they show up. Um, they take the family hostage. She's got the wife and the two kids and the dad, Matt Watts, who's played by David Harbour, you know, Stranger Things, David Harbour. Yep. And he is an accountant for General Motors. It turns out that whoever has hired Jones to hire the three focal men. They want some kind of document that is hidden in the safe of Matt Wurtz's immediate boss. So they, this, this is the job. It's like, you're gonna, we're going to go to your office. You're going to get that document. And after that, you and your wife and your kids, you'll be fine. And so the plan goes as described up until the point that, well... The document they're looking for isn't there. And when everyone returns to the house, Charlie, Kieran Culkin's character, flips out and tries to execute everyone. He is stopped in his tracks. And then for the remainder of the film, Curtis and Ronald, Cheadle and Del Toro, they essentially try to decipher what the fuck is going on. This was obviously some kind of setup. Who orchestrated it? Why did they orchestrate it? How far does it lead? Can I trust you? Can you know? Can we trust any any each of the others outliers? Can anyone be fucking trusted? So it's essentially quite an old fashioned gangster thriller slash mystery, and it's sort of replete with all of your classic double crosses and uh, the intersection with contemporaneous societal commentary at the time because you have obviously General Motors which is an American big business and there's inclusion in there of some other uh, big league American automobile manufacturers and the kind of the way that uh, they intersect both in the film and, and possibly would have at the time with organized crime and a kind of uh, mid-level bureaucratic corruption. So it's, yeah, it's essentially you're straight in, in narrative terms, it's straightforward sort of gangster yarn. Um, yeah, I, I really, really liked this one. I thought it was really cool. You know how we, uh, we spoke not so long ago about how we wish the gangster picture would return to a bit more of a substantive and a bit more serious place and we really can't be doing with all of this incessant wisecracking and postmodern self-awareness and it was just getting, the, the kind of Richie and Tarantino knockoffs were just getting very tiresome. Yeah, yeah. The hip glibness. 
the, no sudden move is basically a resurrection of the kind of thing that I want to see more of. You've got uh, the two focal characters, ultimately, are Goins and Rousseau, the characters of Cheadle and Del Toro. And you have, yeah, you have these two men from cross-racial cultural barriers who make their living very much the same way, but they, they have to join forces in light of um, noticeable bigotry from, you know, the, the, the race does play a part in the film. It doesn't play, um, it, it's not really um, very, it's not very pronounced in that capacity, but it does, there is some kind of racial acrimony in the air that they, real, and their recognition that they have to transcend that to work together in, in, in the hope that they might survive this whole fucking clusterfuck. Um, it's acknowledged, but it's acknowledged in a subtle way, which I, which I liked a lot. Uh, really, really good dialogue. A lot of it is quite elliptical and gritty. Some of it's, you know, almost mammoth-like, which is something that's always going to really sell me. And every single member of this cast, I just think they, yeah, they just deliver a really, really solid, punchy performance. And what a cast as well. I mean, I've already mentioned Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, Brendan Fraser, Kieran Culkin, but you're also talking about Bill Duke, Ray Liotta. Yeah, I saw Bill Duke was in this. Yeah, Bill Duke, Ray Liotta, um, David Harbour, Matt Damon. You know, um, yeah, there's a, there's a hell of a cast in there, man. And and it's all really, it, I, I just think it was weird. I was watching, I was thinking, this film isn't essentially doing anything that I've never seen before. But just the, it's all in, the trope execution is just so good. The, the script is so good. I love the dialogue. I really just liked the progression the progression of the scenes, everything was tight. I really believed, I believed um, Cheadle and Del Toro as Goins and Rousseau. There's a chemistry there. And I think it's definitely one of Don Cheadle's best performances in years. I've heard a lot of people criticize this film saying there's too much going on, but I really don't think there, that there is because you do have a lot of these great noir tropes that are utilized to the best of, the best of their uh, uh, utility with this great social commentary. Because, um, I won't, I've mentioned that Matt Damon's in it. I won't really say anything beyond that, but his focal scene in this film is probably the most important scene in the film. And it is impeccably done. I think it was probably, is the scene that I came away from the film remembering the most. It's very, very well written. And it really, and it essentially hammers home the whole message of this, of, of the piece. And uh, yeah, I, I, I felt very enthusiastic about it. I think it's I think it's a really really good film. I don't necessarily think it's one of Soderbergh's best, but I think it's a really solid crime film. I think um, the the way that it executes its reveals, and the way that it uh, delivers the surprising double crosses, and the way that it does make some cogent social remarks, I do. I think it really works. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I really enjoyed No Sudden Move. And I think, I do think it's a shame that it's flown right under the radar because if you enjoy, if you enjoy crime films and thrillers that just have a bit more of a thoughtful edge to them and are character driven, I think this one succeeds really nicely. Cool so, stuff. Yeah. So yeah. Like, what is it about Benicio Del Toro films that fly under the radar? Because he's one of those actors... Yeah, I'm, I don't know, man. It's I've got weird. some trivia at the end of the podcast on Benicio Del Toro because we haven't really covered him that much although we've definitely mentioned him in films that we've liked. But at the same time, he's, he's delivered amazing 
performances throughout his career, he's been an incredibly consistent actor. Yeah, his films seem to always get stuck on the kind of indie smaller release circuit. I don't even, with I, a few notable exceptions. I don't think I've ever seen a Del Toro performance that I didn't like. The guy's just got something about him. Mm. You know, I mean, he was, he, I mean, because he's great in this. He's great in Sicario. I think he's, he's very good at playing somebody, even if you know a lot about the character, there's something about Del Toro's countenance and body language. It always sort of teases a, a more of a mis- some sort of mystery beneath the veneer. And he does that in a very, um, you know, in a, in a multitude of ways. He's got very expressive way. eyes, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I'd say that, it, you know, the character of Rousseau in No Sudden Move is somewhat mysterious for those same reasons. He's, he's mysterious for entirely different reasons than, say, um, Matey in Sicario. I can't remember his f- character's fucking name. But yeah, there's something about Del Toro that is, is all, I just always find it really compelling. And yeah, it's, it is annoying that, um, you know, work where he turns up and he gives a really, like, solid effort. It just goes to, yeah, just start right underneath there. Hardly anyone notices it. Which is a shame, because it, it, this film works. Well, it sounds like a fun, gritty ride. I'm up for that one. Yeah, definitely. I'll Check it out, mate. No, it's, it's good. It really works well. And next up, we have a brand new Shudder original. This is one called Hellbender. Now, this is from a team that I was hitherto unaware of, but this is from the quite nicely named Adams family. This is, uh, the film was written and directed by John Adams, Zelda Adams, and Toby Poser. Now, John Adams and Toby Poser are husband and wife, and Zelda is their daughter. Wow. And all three of them have been writing, directing, and starring in films together for a number of years now, it seems, and I had never even heard of them. Before. In my family, that would just cause a gigantic argument. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed that they've been able to continue. But but anyway. I, think they've, they've been, I think they've been doing it since about 2013, 2014, so they've been doing it a little while now. Oh, interesting. And um, yeah, so this is their latest venture. So as I said, they write, direct, and star. So you have Zelda Adams and her real-life mother, Toby Poser, playing on-screen mother and daughter. So Zelda Adams stars as Izzy. And her mother, who is just credited as mother, they don't give her a name in the film for whatever reason. They live in isolation in the Catskill Mountains. And um, Zelda... Her mum is essentially the only person she ever spends time with because we're informed that she has some sort of autoimmune disorder. She's very sick and was born that way and can't actually go near anybody in case she gets contaminated. And um, to sort of pass the time, Izzy and her mum, they play in a band together. It's like a hard rock heavy metal band called Hellbender. And there's each day... They jam and they have a really good time and they jam in like sort of, you know, black, lots of black metal type makeup. It's their, it's their kind of outlet. It's one of the many, many ways in which they uh, fortify their, you know, the maternal bond because there's only the two of them. Izzy spends a lot of time in her room and her mother offers to go into town and pick up things. And so she, apart from playing drums, which she seems to do very well, playing drums alongside her mum, she doesn't really have a hell of a lot going on in life. But one day she's out and about in the vicinity. And um, it's because their their home is surrounded by a great big sprawling woodland. And it, oh, yes, sorry, in the opening of this film, we see what appears to be the execution of a witch 
or a person who is possessed by something. And this is, it's a sort of about five minutes, a rather excruciating hanging sequence, followed by um, quite an incredible demonic visual that I wasn't prepared for. But uh, we find that this uh, has some relevance to the surrounding forest of their home. Um, because Izzy's out and about and a stranger happens upon her saying that he's lost his way. He's trying to find his niece's house who lives around there. Izzy informs him that she's trespassing, that he needs to leave. He tries to be friendly, but her mother interrupts, gestures Izzy to go back home. And then the mother also gestures for the man to follow her. She stops, turns to him and says, are you married or do you have any children? He responds that he doesn't, um, at which point she essentially spontaneously combusts him into nothingness. And we find out that this figure being hung in the opening of the film is one of the ancestors of Izzy and her mother. And it turns out that these two are what are referred to as hellbenders. Now, hellbenders in the film, they're described as kind of a mix between witch, demon, and apex predator. They essentially sort of have a satanic witchcraft lineage. And Izzy discovers completely inadvertently one day that she is able to harness that power via fear. She puts a worm in her mouth because she does actually, um, she accidentally meets a group of people and uh, around her age and begins to sort of clandestinely try to make friends with them outside of her mother's knowledge because the autoimmune disorder thing that was just a load, that was just bullshit the reason her mother doesn't want her going near anyone is because she has inherited this kind of power and it makes her very very dangerous to people and one day Izzy consumes an earthworm as part of a prank and when she eats it she finds herself going into a trance-like state because it's explained that the blood of fearful things trying to survive, that is what taps in to the powers that they have as hellbenders. Ah, I see. Yeah, which I thought was quite interesting. So um, once she makes this discovery, her mother, not with initial reluctance, quite understandably, but with as the film goes along with uh, sort of um, we- weirdly sweet air of bonding um she decides to teach her daughter more about where they came from what kind of things they're able to do why they shouldn't attempt to utilize certain things for certain things etc etc so it's a it is a horror film but it's 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 a kind of coming of age tale inside i mean i don't really know if it's a coming of age tale inside a horror film or a horror film inside a coming of age tale it's sort of like a you know it's like is this young girl essentially finding herself you know as, as so many 15 16 year olds in motion pictures do but in a way that is completely and utterly uh unique relative to the way that so many other 15 16 year old girls do um and here's the thing about hellbender it's made in a very modest budget, and that is noticeable. Some of the acting in it, you're getting on quite shaky ground here. There were a, there were a good few moments in this where I thought mm, that that could have been delivered 
a shite sight better. Not really with Zelda Adams and her mum. They were actually quite solid for the most part. But there were other bit players in it who didn't really do as well as they could have done. Some of the camera work did leave a bit to be desired. But all in all, I think this is actually quite an interesting movie. It's definitely it's a, definitely one of the more original horror films that's come out in the past couple of years. Because there are moments where the uh, the modest budget actually benefits it because... There's points where it takes on an almost documentarian air, like you feel like you're a bit of a fly on the wall watching uh, this mother and daughter and the way they interact with each other and the way that their sort of relationship strengthens over the discovery that the younger one has made about herself. And there are some moments in there that I think because they're real-life mother and daughter, it really adds to that authenticity of their connection on the screen. And there are, there are some genuinely creepy and scary moments in it. And so even though it's, I mean, it's certainly not a 10 out of 10 film, not every single facet of it was perfect, but it, it, it held my interest. And I actually thought that the way that it approached its themes um, was definitely memorable. And I think it's definitely something, it's something that I would revisit. Um, it's, it's very ambitious. And it's nice um, that when you see something that is, that is incredibly ambitious and yeah, its ambitions arguably exceed its limitations. It's nice when to see that it succeeds more than it does not. Mm. You know, because it does have, as I said, it does have those little foibles in there. One of those things where you think if the budget had just been up so little, this would be really, really good. You know, it just needed a, a push that it never quite got. Yeah, well, I mean, this this is the thing because, uh, as I say, I, I think that the 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 low budget um, it did benefit the films in some ways. Um, it, you know, it may have hindered it slightly in others, but it, it certainly benefited the film in some ways. And I kind of was thinking that if it did have a higher budget and if it didn't have those limitations, would the spirit of the stuff that did work, would that be dissipated? Just uh, That is something that always crosses my mind. In summary, though, I do think it's definitely, it's definitely one of the more interesting horror films that has come out in the past two to three years. Um, the focal mother and daughter relationship, it does work really well. There's a lot of uh, crazy musical interludes that I believe because they, they, their characters are in a band together. I think they're original songs. And some of them are actually quite well made and catchy um, with this very kind of, uh, you know, black metal punky air hanging around them. Lots of really cool visuals. It doesn't saturate you with exposition. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I thought Hellbender was, it, it was it was cool. And it's, it's definitely worth a watch. It's an original idea. And as I said, it's ambitious. And for the most part, it does succeed. So, and it has made me interested to see more of what the Adams family are capable of. Because I've never heard of them before, but they do have a few films under their belt. And I would like to check out more of what they've done. Because this film does show evidence of, artistic intelligence and strong creative bents. If you're in the mood for um, an original approach to the horror and coming of age genres, uh, yeah, you could definitely do a lot worse, I'd say. Cool stuff. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay then, so TV of the week and this week, huge show out at the moment on Netflix. This is Inventing Anna. Never heard of it. No? Nope. It immediately went to the top of the Netflix charts and uh, has been going down ever since. It shows how much I've got my finger on the pulse then. Well, you've been immersed in your world of film and as usual, I've been immersed in my world of TV. But uh, this is actually created and produced by Shonda Rhimes. 
and her Shondaland production company. Now, um, I'm familiar with a couple of her film pieces, but most familiar with her for her work on Bridgerton. Oh, uh, yeah. Of which season two is going to be coming out very soon. And uh, I quite liked Bridgerton, actually. There was a fresh and interesting take on the period drama with a bit of a modern spin with the colours turned up. I thought it was quite well done and well paced. So quite looking forward to season two. Obviously, I'll be reviewing that at some point. But this tells the real-life story, dramatization, of course, of a real-life story, of Anna Delvey, who was later revealed to be Anna Sorokin. Now, she's played by Julia Garner, and she was a New York City socialite. Uh, very, very well known amongst the New York City high society, hoi polloi scene, uh, known as a lover of art, uh, trying to set up her own art foundation, and supposedly a German heiress. Uh, so she had this constant front of being this a very affected, very, um, you know, it's kind of, I immediately get myself bogged down in explanations here, but you know, sort of high society New York fashionistas. Yes, yes. This is very much the sort of person that she portrayed herself to be. However, you can probably guess from the title, Inventing Anna. And the fact that this is actually a very, very modern case as well. It's made news articles all over the world when this came out that she was, in fact, a uh, con woman of the 21st century. And so this follows primarily the story of Vivian Kent, played by Anna Klumsky, a New York journalist who picked up on the story when Anna was being taken into court and decided to do some digging into the background and find out how the hell this woman managed to pass herself off as a very rich high society German heiress and essentially con or come very close at least to conning some very big and very uh, financially adept institutions into handing over large amounts of their wealth Mm -hmm. in order to fund her ridiculously lavish lifestyle. So nice and simple setup on this one, really. We've got Vivian Kent, Anna Klumsky. Uh, Most of it is set in sort of flashbacks where as she picks up pieces of the story, as she learns facts about how all this went down, we then get a piece backwards showing Anna actually doing it, how she managed to pull it off. The people that she roped in all the way through, although she actually did quite a good job of keeping her con separate from the people she was conning with, if you like. A lot of people got involved around her and helped her out without actually realizing that she was a complete and utter fraud. And you have Vivian's team around her as well, a sort of motley crew of journalists who decide that uh, Vivian could probably do with some help, not least because uh, she's quite heavily pregnant and is becoming increasingly more obsessed with not only getting this story out there, but also using it as an opportunity to turn her career around. Her career has slightly been on the slide for reasons I won't go into because it's a bit of a spoiler revealed through the course of the show. So yes, nice and easy setup, investigating a fraud, how it all went down, true life story brought to the screen in vivid Shondaland fashion. Ah, first thing to say about this, uh, Anna Klumsky I really like. I thought she was brilliant in Veep in particular. She's a very good comedic actress, but she's got that ability to turn on dramatic acting with the flick of a switch. Is she is she in in the loop? Uh, yes, she is. Is she yeah. the one who like has the bit of a dalliance with Toby, the nerdy fucking um, knobbed British age? If I remember correctly, yeah, she's like, also famous as a child actress in I believe it's My Girl with Dan Aykroyd. Yes, yes, I know exactly who you mean now. Which yeah. I rewatched actually over New Year's and quite enjoyed. But My Girl, yeah, that's thoroughly depressing, isn't it? Yeah, she <laughs> actually she's actually one of those rare examples of somebody who was a child actress and seemed to survive with her ego intact. 
You know what I mean? She actually seems like a really down-to-earth, very good actress. Came up sort of... Unlike Paul McCauley. Yeah, I've, yes. well, unlike so many child actors and actresses we could name. Sure. But she's very, very good. She plays a part with integrity. Uh, as I said, it's more of a dramatic part than anything else. But there's moments of comedy, moments of frustration. The fact that she's, you know, she's got this uh, young family that she's about to start, but she becomes obsessed with the case. She does the classic thing of taking over the um, child's bedroom that they're decorating in anticipation for the new baby and using one wall to put up all these photographs on it as she gradually pins down where Anna was and who she, who, you know, where she was at what point and how she was starting to work on this guy. And all these sort of amazing facts come to life throughout this piece. Uh, things like Anna essentially conning a private plane company to lend her jets on regular intervals, using people's yachts, going into the world's most fabulous hotel rooms, and then basically stiffing the owners and just simply moving on to the next hotel. Swath. Yeah, yeah million, in terms of actual money she was able to get away with without giving anything away about the ending, although I'm sort of going to go there in my review of this. I do apologize for spoilers, but I'm going to explain why I'm going there. But ultimately, she, although she tried to rip off financial companies for millions and millions and millions of dollars and didn't quite get away with it. She did manage to rip off God knows how many luxury hotels, spas, etc., all the way through simply by bouncing around and not paying the bill. And because she had this German heiress integrity behind her, this front that was, she managed to pull off with a, a serious level of aplomb, actually. Mm. Uh, she got much, much further with it than you'd expect. And so this is what the article eventually became about is, doesn't this show a weakness within people's perception of other people within New York society? You simply have to have a good taste in fashion, a dismissive attitude, a sense of entitlement, and you can get much, much further than you think. Julia Garner, as I said, plays Anna Delvey, and she plays her in an incredibly irritating fashion. Oh. Now, this is very obviously deliberate because Anna Delvey is not a nice person. And she plays her with this level of entitlement and detachment and sheer horribleness, for want of a better word, that she's a really, really hateable character. The fact that I hated her character so much actually speaks very well to the performance. She also does a very affected accent, which is, I mean, it's supposed to be a German heiress, but it's not. It's German mixed with American mixed with something else. Now, it wouldn't be much of a spoiler to reveal that as this show unfolds, we find out that Anna... Uh, wasn't German to begin with. So again, this all makes sense. I'm not going to criticize Julia Garner for doing an accent that's sort of all over the place because I, I think, at the very least, that that was an intentional thing. Sure. To have this bizarre sort of half German, half Russian drawl that, again, is sort of, it sort of grates on the ears a little bit, along with her, her prissy attitude towards the people around her, etc. Really, really makes you really sort of hate this character but at the same time want to see what she does so next. she's an insufferable prick yeah, yeah. And, and unbelievably audacious and it's the audaciousness that got her through and made her puncture this world in the way that she did it's the thing that got her as far as she did and she's always sort of trying to self-justify her actions as well in the sense that she's trying to build a business that she's a young woman in a very patriarchal New York society um, she's not listened to because she's pretty, because she's she's obsessed with fashion, um, and because she's simply not, you know, women within a patriarchal society, immigrant women in particular, uh, don't get the seriousness they deserve. And she uses that as a point to puncture all these organizations, all these people going, you need to listen to me because you never listen to people like me. Quite a clever trick, actually, as far as cons go, mm. I think. So, so it's almost like using the kind of woke movement to puncture yourself through and get yourself to a higher position. 
Where this falls down massively, um, number one, it's nine episodes. And all of them, in fact, almost all of them, one of them is 59 minutes, almost all of them are over an hour. The last episode is an hour and 22 minutes long. And man, does it drag. This is uh, a story that could easily have been done in six episodes. It's not to say at any point that it's particularly bad in terms of its plot lines or in terms of its acting performances. In fact, there's good performances in this all the way through. It's more that you just feel that so much of it is unnecessary. It gets stuck in certain lo- locations for far too long. It's, you can feel the plot gradually sort of lose some weight behind it. Suddenly you go back to Vivian, you go back to Anna Klumsky and suddenly she sort of pulls the plot back up to her pace and then it falls over again because here she is doing the same thing over and over. It goes into Anna Delvey's personal relationships, a hotel concierge that she managed to essentially befriend that ended up becoming her go-to woman for getting her connections within this world. Mm. But every time it gets too deep into one of these, it seems to not really know how to get itself out of it. And you're kind of waiting for the journalist storyline to come back to pick the rhythm with the piece back up. That is not its major problem, though. Its major problem is that it absolutely cannot decide where it stands on its subject. When you're making a piece about a real-life person, particularly a con person, if you like, you need to either go, this person's horrible and deserve what they got, or it needs to go, this person actually had some merit and maybe we can understand where they came from, although they did horrible things. Essentially, they might be a good person underneath and this all sort of makes sense. Or you can say, actually, it's morally ambiguous and the sort of the truth is somewhere in the middle. Was she a bad person? Was she a good person? It's up to the audience to decide. Those are your three options for this sort of tale. This show for eight episodes does its absolute damnedest to make you hate Anna. It really does. I don't see how anybody could possibly like Anna. She is so entitled. She's so dismissive. She's so nose in the air above absolutely everybody around her. She's constantly ripping off people. She ends up ripping off one of her friends who actually seems, although a bit ditzy, like quite a nice person. She ends up taking her to the cleaners by using her work bank account to pay for a lot of things. Put her 60 grand in the hole with her company because of uh, machinations in the plot and, and using hotels, etc. Again, I'm not going to go too far into spoilers. You really, really dislike this person. You're kind of rooting for Vivian the whole way through to spear her, to put this article out there and go, look at this woman and look at all the horrible things she did. And then in the last episode, everybody likes her and everybody roots for her. And it is unbelievably <sighs> tonally jarring. Yeah, jarring was the word that was just entered my head. So. Jarring is probably a, a word I use too much, actually, for when a show shifts tones like this. But, but this is such an egregious example of it. It's, characters, un, it's understating it. Yeah, really, yeah. Characters throughout this piece that you know have been chasing it down, go, oh my God, I can't believe she did that. I can't believe she did this. So all these journalists that are around her, there's quite, there's a nice element of the journalists around Vivian act like her sort of Greek chorus. So they're right. discussing all these discoveries and things going, oh my God, I can't believe she did this. And how did she get away with this? And all those kind of stuff. A lot of quite witty lines in there as well. It's quite well written. All of a sudden, it wouldn't be a big spoiler to give away that the last episode is about her trial and what she eventually, you know, the comeuppance of all of these events that are portrayed in the mm. show. All of a sudden, they're rooting for her, for a not guilty plea. Even though they know damn well that she's done all of the things that she's accused of. And Vivian herself, who again has been spearing her and chasing her down to to her great detriment while she's struggling with a difficult pregnancy, all of a sudden she starts rooting for her as well. And what the show asks of the audience is, and actually the concierge character, I'm sorry, I had a name up here earlier and I've lost it, but she actually puts it perfectly as to what the show's trying to tell you. She says, listen, you have to respect the hustle. 
What this show wants to say at the very, very end is that because Anna is a woman, because she is um, an immigrant, because it is difficult, especially for foreign women in, within this world to succeed, that all of the actions that you've seen so far that you've hated her for doing and really wanted to get speared for at the end are justified. There's even in the episode before that, Vivian goes to Germany to hunt down her father, her supposedly rich German, you know, that's the reason she's a German heiress in the first place. And you're thinking, okay, here it comes. Here's the point where it reveals in the plot that Anna has actually had a terrible traumatic childhood or she was run over by a truck full of kittens when she was younger. And this is how she's managed to reach this point. No, no, no. Turns out she's just been horribly self-entitled her entire life and her family have abandoned her. Run over by a truck full of kittens. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is the first thing I thought of. It's a traumatic, <laughs> traumatic event that might send she someone into She hates kittens a, as well. In, just, in, you know, just when you thought she wasn't fucking evil enough. She's in, just... in my brain, that analogy worked, but now I think about it, yeah. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? You're thinking, and I can already hear the criticisms of my review coming in. I can already hear people going, yeah, but okay, loads of films are about really unlikable characters. But at the end, they ask you to think about were they really as bad as you thought? The problem with doing that is every film that I can think of, I'm trying to anticipate that critique all day long. And all I can think of is every single example of that you can throw at me. The reason why you sort of sympathize with the character is along the way you're shown morally virtuous facets of their character that suggest that underneath there's an inner hurt or a tragedy or a, a form of guilt, some kind of... Anna has absolutely none of these. She is a pure egotistical narcissist that ended up ripping people off for a lot of money. That lady I was talking about earlier who she um, stiffed her for a work account and got her 60 grand in the hole. At the trial, I'm going slightly into spoiler territories now, but if you can't tell already, don't watch this because I thought the ending was absolute bollocks. (laughs) When she gets to trial, this woman begins recounting her story. And she begins recounting about how she stole this money off me. And, And Anna's defense lawyer puts forward the argument that actually, though, before she speared you for this money, she paid for everything, didn't she? So she took you out to fancy dinners, she took you to spas, she took you on holiday, all this kind of stuff. You enjoyed all of that, though, didn't you? And now this tragedy has befallen you, this terrible event. You've actually got a book deal, haven't you? You've got a book deal about this. So you're going to do very, very well financially at this. And I thought to myself, what's that got to do with the price of fish? Do you yeah. know what I mean? And then... her. Anna's friends that are still around her then start spearing this woman going, I can't believe you betrayed her. I can't believe you betrayed her. She she fucked her over for 60 grand. I'm sorry, Liam. I love you to death. You're my best mate. If you fucked me over for 60 grand, I'd betray you as well. But the show is left sitting. The show essentially really wants you as an audience to go, yeah, what a horrible woman betraying this common woman for fucking her over. And I'm sitting there going, this makes totally no sense. It can't decide, right at the very end, it suddenly decides that the audience should really respect and like this woman because she's a woman. And I just think it's, it, it just leaves you sitting there with this quizzical look on your face going, it's like all of the characters suddenly have a brain slug. You know, there's some B plot that I didn't see in a missing episode where aliens came down, the brain slugs got put in through their ears. Now all of a sudden, ups, down, left, right. And this woman is what somehow about, a fantastic what, person. What about all of the what about all of the migrants who come into you know both um, women and otherwise? What about all the migrants coming to the country and actually embark on an honest career because they're not fucking disingenuous, selfish pieces of shit? Yeah, shouldn't uh, shouldn't they be commended, apart from, uh, and not people like this? And I'm sorry as well, women who are hustling, this should be respected and protected, etc. What about this woman that works for Vanity Fair who's got this sixty grand taken out of her bank account? 
Because uh, the whole point as well was when she was underneath Anna's spell, if you like, and she was being taken to all these dinners and holidays and things like that. She had no idea she was a con woman. That was the whole point. She was roping in people that actually thought she was a German heiress. So when she lent her, if you like, this 60 grand, she was under the impression that actually this was just a simple financial fuck up and it'd be coming back to her soon. But the show actively goes for this woman and it wants to pretend that it's some sort of feminist piece. Yeah, but, but I, this I, is the thing. I, I thought it was... Almost deplorable. Yeah, but some, I'm sorry, it. but so, oh, and I will, I'm sorry, I will put my head above the parapet here because this is a trend I noticed and I have, I have no patience for it whatsoever anymore. This is, just sounds like another example, that, um, which is ubiquitous nowadays of people doing the, um, you know, the fallacious appeal to hypocrisy thing because you do something like call this out saying, why should we respect this just because she's a woman? Because her behavior is deplorable. And the first, the go-to response of so many people is like, oh, so it's okay when men do it, is it? It's like, no, no it's not. It's no, not okay it's not when okay anyone then does either. it. No. So it's like, it's the sort of thing that's like, oh, well, you're okay with men being dickheads. So like when a woman does it, you should applaud. No, no, no. You, I'm, I'm absolutely- he's a dickhead and you're a dickhead as well. People who don't do this are not dickheads. People do it are dickheads. It's quite simple. And to restate as well, I know I said it before, but I'm going to say it again just to you know exemplify is that yes, you can do shows about horrible people doing horrible things, but actually at the end you ask the question, hmm, were they really that bad? In this specific case, yes. <laughs> yes, they absolutely were. Basically what the show wants to say at the very end is, but she was a hustler and wasn't she fabulous? Didn't she dress well? Did she? And I thought to myself actually like, Anna Delvey's biggest con, really, because she's made money out of this, by the way. She's out of prison now. And she's made hundreds of thousands of dollars off of selling the rights to this. Her biggest con wasn't the investors. It wasn't her friends around her. It was the creators of this series for making them make a series where it portrays all the horrible stuff she did. And right at the end says she was actually not that bad of a person. No. You look at what happened. She actively was. I don't buy it. The show has been conned. And it tries, what's really, really annoying is it tries to con you as a viewer into believing the same thing. And I'm sorry, I don't. Well, good. Because uh, to me, if you are somebody who is morally relativistic, then all you show me is that you're somebody who doesn't have any principles. And I don't have any time to, I don't have anything to learn from you. So. I'm, I'm quite happy to see the good and bad people, but there's literally none of it on display here. And as a result, this show just does not work. I found it almost insulting. But mm. anyway, uh, yeah, rent over. Uh, my trivia this week, I thought we'd do Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad you suggested this because I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, and it doesn't get enough love and we never cover him enough. No, he's so. great. No, Benicio Del Toro is, um, he's a real crackerjack of an actor and I've always liked him. Well, let's start off with this. Benicio Del Toro was born on February 19th, 1967 in Santos, Puerto Rico. Del Toro's mother died when he was nine years old and his family moved to a farm in Pennsylvania four years later. Del Toro enrolled at the University of California at San Diego after high school with the intention of becoming a lawyer. Instead, his love of acting led him to pursue serious theater training. He moved to New York City, where he attended the Circle in the Square Professional Theater School for winning a scholarship to the renowned Stella Adler Conservatory. After appearing in guest spots on such television shows as Miami Vice, Del Toro landed his first feature film role, portraying a circus performer called Duke the Dog-Faced Boy in Big Top Pee-Wee, a forgettable big-screen vehicle for Paul Rubin's manic TV alter ego Pee-Wee Herman. Del Toro subsequently had small roles in the James Bond film License to Kill, starring Timothy Dalton, as well as the Indian runner, actor Sean Penn's first directorial debut. 
Oh, the one with old, um, is it Viggo Mortensen and David Morse? Yeah. Uh, based on a Springsteen song, that is. I didn't actually know that was Del Toro's, um, one of his screen, his, like, one of his first um, appearances, though. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. I've got to look out for him, and it's kind of worth, I think, tracking down the original Miami Vice episodes. Yeah. With and, Del Toro. Uh, well, I mean, I also it. haven't seen him as Duke the dog-faced boy, either, so. No, it's got to be done, doesn't it? It really has to be done. <laughs> he is a huge fan of Fulham Football Club. Fellow fans include Elizabeth Hurley, Lily Allen, Piers Brosnan, Hugh Grant, Hugh Laurie, Daniel Radcliffe, Andrew Johnson, and the late Michael Jackson. Fulham. Why has Fulham got this weird celebrity connection? I don't know. Well, what, what, why is um, what, what, why does Ryan Reynolds co-own Wrexham? I think that was more of a drunken bet. <laughs> it's <laughs> weird. Like you know, you have from. these like places that you would think anyone outside of the UK wouldn't be familiar with. And then you have all these, I mean, uh, the other one, I mean, but you know, just Benicio Del Toro is a fan of Fulham is something, I mean, I think, okay, cool. But I also think, huh? (laughs) (laughs) But fair enough. He is one of five Academy Award winning actors to play a James Bond villain. The other four are Christopher Walken, Javier Bardem, Christoph Waltz, and Rami Malek. Benicio is the only one not to play a main villain and to play a villain before winning his Oscar. Well, Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Benicio and longtime friend Josh Brolin were once told by then Miramax Films executive Meryl Poster that they were the worst auditioners they had ever witnessed. Really? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, those, those two are absolutely fucking outstanding in Sicario. Mm. Their, both of their performances in that film are, are completely excellent. So I've heard a lot of very, very good actors talk about this, though, that the audition process is so weird that it throws you off and that you can't... I, I can't say I've ever been to a film audition. No. But I've heard many actors talk about how, oh, no, I know I hate auditioning. I give terrible auditions because it's so artificial to be in a room with someone staring down at you and to deliver something, something decent. Yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how many great roles back in his uh, younger days Benicio Del Toro was turned down for simply because his auditions weren't that great. Maybe he could have made it a lot sooner. I mean, him and Josh Brolin, the worst auditions you'd ever come across. Mm. Just like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the two of them, you know, individually, I think they're, they're great. I think they both got tons of talent. They also work together really well. So, yeah, that's just sounds very bizarre. He badly injured his wrist during a stunt fight during the filming of William Friedkin's The Hunted. He fell on his wrist as he dove for a knife and actor Tommy Lee Jones fell on top of him. He was injured so badly that he was out of work for months even though the film was virtually completed. He required three hours of therapy daily and reportedly there is a question whether he will ever gain full use of the wrist. Do you ever see The Hunted? Yeah, quite yeah. liked it. Okay, yeah, I've, I've always quite liked that one. I think it got like, some really unfair critical reception. Quite a good war story, I think, at the very least. I mean, terrible injury. Obviously, we hope that he's all fully recovered and everything. But, you know, when you, know, you go to chop an onion or something, you go, oh, my wrists. Oh, how'd you do that? Oh, Tommy Lee Jones fell on top of me. Come again. Yeah. <laughs> In a film. <laughs> and my last fact here. According to a profile in Esquire UK, a young Benicio Del Toro once dreamed of playing pro sports rather than appearing on the silver screen. Benicio Del Toro played basketball to a high standard in his youth, Esquire UK reported. His boyhood Bredrick Wall in Miramar, Puerto Rico, was a hall of fame of posters of his favourite players. 
For a time, he was even talented enough to dream of a career as a pro. In addition to basketball, Del Toro has a number of other hobbies. In an interview on BAFTA.org, Del Toro noted that he loves rock music, specifically The Clash and The Rolling Stones. He also has a love of painting and even considered majoring in painting in college. However, in the same interview, he makes his love of basketball clear, going so far as to say, that sport is my sanctuary, my oasis. Other pastimes he enjoys, according to that interview, are smoking Cuban cigars and carpentry. Cool. That's some pretty rugged shit going on there. I mean, he's not, he's not, he, I, know, I know he's He's definitely not a small lad, but is he tall enough to play basketball? I mean, those guys are all like fucking six foot six, aren't they? Yeah, but you see some smaller guys as well. I think smaller yeah, guys I guess are so. yeah, used yeah. to their speed and agility. Yeah, and yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's... But I have to say, nobody looks better smoking a cigar than Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, well, I mean, he played... Is that simply because he loves them in real life? But Quite he's... possibly. Didn't he? I mean, he played older Che, didn't he? Yes, and, yeah, yeah, yeah very famous. Like Fidel, who was also very partial to sucking on the old cigar. But... Frankie Fourfingers liked a cigar. Yeah, he did, well. yeah, yeah. Frankie Fourfingers. I wonder if that gets added in. I mean, obviously, in Che's case, he actually yeah. did smoke cigars, but the fact that he is such a lover of so, them. Well, my first introduction to Benito Del Toro, actually, knowingly, was um, in The Usual Suspects. Yeah. Because I think cause he's brilliant as Fenster in that. And um, I think a really underrated bit of comedy in cinema is the interrogation sequence when all five of the guys are being hectored by Chaz Palmentero and the other guy. And uh, there's a bit where he goes, um, one of the cops goes like, your friend McManus told us a different story altogether. And he's just like, oh, was that the one about the hooker with uh, dysentery? You know, just totally <laughs> taking the piss out of him. It's, I, mean, I mean, that that is, I think that, that's the film that gets really under, is really underrated for its humour. And uh, Del Toro is um, is brilliant, just as Fenster, this like mangled English speaking hustler. He's at, he's just sublime in it, though they all are. But yeah, my first introduction to him, the usual suspects. Oh, there you go. Yes, Benicio Del Toro. I mean, we've actually mentioned a few films of his over the course of our run, but uh, he's someone I always look out for whenever I see he's in the cast or something. I think, ah, oh, you know, oh, he's, he's reliable, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, so I, I just remembering actually also him and Brolin were all, they also worked together in Inherent Vice, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. And again, just uh, chemistry was was terrific. So no, he's made, he's made some, he's made some good and old Benicio. Well, there you go. That's the end of our free podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another free and a premium. If you'd like to check out our premium content, uh, this week I'm going to be reviewing, uh, well, a very scary documentary about plane crashes. Oh, wonderful. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that would be a fun way to start off, I thought. This is uh, Downfall, the case against Boeing. Nice Netflix doc. And then I believe you're reviewing Escape from Alcatraz. Yeah, so I watched Escape from Alcatraz a few nights ago and I absolutely loved it. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be giving that a little rundown. And off the back of that, we're going to be talking about our favourite escape films. Yeah, I mean, for the I've written down a few because um, I think we were discussing this. So I've written down a few films that are kind of predicated on prison escapes, but also ones where you know it's it's uh, like maybe playing with the definition a little bit more loosely. But a lot of films like, escaping from something is the main yeah, plot. So esca- run, esca- running away, escape running slash away. chase. You know, like try, trying to you know tr- trying to escape in an outwitting fashion. I've got uh, some uh, jailbreak trivia at the end as well. Sweet. For a bit of fun and games. Isn't, yes. that, isn't that a great Thin Lizzy tune? It is. It's one of the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. That and Dancing in the Moonlight. Absolutely. 
An emerald. But I, yeah, An emerald. The Thin Lizzy podcast. And, you know, boys are back in town. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> but yes, if you'd like to check out any of our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast. And you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Lovely. Okay, that'll do it for this week, guys. Hope to see you on the premium, if not free one next week. Take it easy. <laughs>